begin a really uh, long kind of journey talking about a topic that seems kind of basic, but yet I think will hopefully show a lot of depth to it. It's just the idea of faith and what it means to live by faith. When you look at this uh, canvas here, we ask some of these questions about uh, what are we drawing when we think about life? Like what picture are we going to draw? What paintbrush is we going to use? What kind of paint are we going to use it with? What is drawn for us or what is given to us? And what is it that God desires for us to paint with this thing called life that we have? In fact, this question <coughs> this morning is how does faith shape the way we see the world is going to set us up to have a much longer discussion uh, about the idea of faith. You see, faith is that idea that we see the world a certain way. Even if you're here this morning and you don't believe in God, maybe you don't think he exists, maybe you think he exists in multiple forms, maybe you think uh, more cosmic or more, more uh, you know, uh, just a kind of a yin and a yang and, a, and a, a karma. I don't know what you may think or believe, but no matter how you do, you have faith on how you see the world. Even the person that has no belief in the afterlife, no belief in God, has faith. They have faith in what they think the world is, how you see the world. Yet God, <coughs> I think, tells us and wants us to have a certain view of the world through faith. I've been reading a book, it's called Good, Goodness, Beauty, and Kindness by Rich, I won't pronounce his last name right, anyways, Val Dallas or something along those lines. And you can see, obviously, uh, if you've been around or if you've heard me preach at all, these are topics I like to preach on. These are words I love to use, and you can see why I could gravitate towards it. But what his argument or what his basic idea is that no matter what happens, we are to basically move towards goodness, beauty, and kindness because this is who God is. In fact, when you think about these three things, these are signs of a life lived well. There are signs of the presence of God's or, or the reality of his presence. As Dave shared last week in the, the festival, the tabernacle, one of the, the gifts of that, one of the, the reminders for the nation of Israel is to know of God's presence. And now here we are with the Holy Spirit in us and that presence of the Holy Spirit in us produces out of us something. And it should produce something of who God is, the character and the nature of God. And part of that is the idea of goodness and beauty and kindness. In fact, David talked about this, picked this up in Psalm 27. He said, one thing I ask of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire of his temple or in his temple. It was in his temple that he was talking about the presence of the Lord. He wanted to be in the presence of the Lord. And what he would find there, he would gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. And so this idea, this concept is, is all throughout scriptures. And, and the fact is that God calls his people to live a certain way by faith. They're going to live by faith. They're not going to live by what everyone else is doing. They're not going to live by, by what makes most sense in their own minds. They're not going to live by their own desires, but they're going to live by faith. And being in the presence of God, in the presence with Him, there should be this beauty that comes out, this goodness, this kindness that comes out. <coughs> yeah, we know we live in a world that isn't quite that way. 
And we're not trying to act like we're, you know, all singing around a campfire, kumbaya. We're not acting like nothing difficult happens or any hardship comes. We realize that we live in a difficult world, that it's complex. And it's hard to paint these things. In fact, if we're honest, we'd recognize we're more prone to seeing the reversals of these things. Evil and ugliness and meanness. In fact, as uh, we talk about this and we dialogue this, there's a topic we've got to talk about that comes involved with this. And it's the idea that, <coughs> that the world is eating at itself because the world, and us included, we have a sin problem. Sin is what Augustine says is carving itself inward or forces us to focus inward to self-protection or self glorification or, or, or some kind of self-awareness in a, in a way to uh, find our own value and our own significance. It, it pulls us inward. We, we want to look towards ourselves and what works for us and what uh, happens and, and makes us be able to, to survive. And that causes this bigger problem we have of sin. In fact, sin is this, ro we need to have that robust theology of sin so that we don't become deceived by it and, and have a false sense of spiritual maturity. Did you ever hear have someone say like, well that's not really who I am, I just made a bad decision? Or I didn't really mean that, that's not what I really meant, or, or that's, you know, that wasn't my intention. And, and I get what they're trying to say, but at the same time, there's something about what they're saying is saying, well, I just made a poor decision or choice. And they're not understanding the, the actual power of sin. The gripping part of the fact is, no, there's all of us have this nature within us that we want to do what we want to do. That's what Adam and Eve saw when they looked upon the garden and they saw the, the fruit. It was, I want that. And I don't want to have limits in my life. I don't want a, a God to, to tell me what I should do or shouldn't do. I don't want to have authority in my life that, that speaks over me in that. Like, I want to do what I want to do. <coughs> and because sin enters in, we have this fracturing, we have this, this in-carving of, of, of our own selves, eating away at ourselves. And so again, we ask this question, what does it mean to live our lives formed by God's view of the world? So that's core, this is what faith is. At its core, we're asking this question and we're saying, what kind of spiritual formation do I need to embody to be able to see this beauty and this goodness and kindness? Like what has to transform in my life? What has to change? What has to be shaped to become more like Christ so that, that I can paint the picture of faith that God wants in its goodness and beauty and kindness? Well, again, to be able to do that, we're going to go and start out in Luke chapter 10. <clears throat> and there's some foundational stuff that we need to talk about before we can even get into the idea of how can we paint this picture. And in Luke chapter 10, we got a very famous, very familiar story of the, the, the teachers of the law, the, the lawyer in this situation, coming to Jesus and asking him this question to basically, in a sense, try to get him to narrow down the, the Old Testament and in a sense try to trap him into, into saying something that was, that was in error or wrong. And so behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, it is written in the law, 
what is written in the law, what do you need or what do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Uh, or sorry, all your soul, all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correct, correctly, do this and you will live. Jesus taking the question and bringing it back to them and the, the lawyer wisely answered it into the, the overarching view of the great commandment. In other parts of the gospel, we see that, that you know, they were 613 commandments in the, or laws in the Old Testament. And, and then there's this overarching idea that the Lord your God is one. And that you should love him with the Lord your God with all your mind, heart, soul, and strength. And, and, and so in that time, the Jewish culture had taken that and had used it to begin a transaction with God. Their transaction went, if I can just live a moral, upright, lawful life, I will become righteous. And I will take that moral life and I will transact it with God's holiness and God will have to look favor upon me. And he will judge me better than he'll judge others because of the transaction. Now what they missed and what Jesus is going to get to <coughs> is the point that it wasn't a transaction between, between the Jewish people or humanity and God. But there was going to be a transaction that was going to happen because of who Jesus was. That the law was just revealing man could not make that transaction. Man was not going to be perfect enough. Man could not live up to God's holy standard. They were going to fall short. But there was going to be a transaction that takes place that would live up to that standard. And that would be God's own son, Jesus. Jesus was the one to fulfill the law. Jesus was the one to pay the price. Jesus was the one to demonstrate first to us that he loved us. And so in response to us realizing it was Jesus and not us, we respond simply by, by believing in that, by receiving it, by living by faith and demonstrating it in loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Now in this picture, <coughs> it gives us this vision of how to live this life by faith. Gives us this vision. How do, we, how do we live this life by faith? Because of that transaction, we find out that his love forms within us. It causes a soul healing, enemy reconciling, beauty seeking, justice embodying, sin conquering vision of the world. That everything we need is found in that transaction that happened between God and Jesus. And that we can get in on the deal. And because we can get in on that, we've found that, that this is now part of the, the transformation that God is doing in us. That we're no longer defined by our family of origin. We're no longer defined by our social economic status. We're no longer defined by what society says. We're no longer defined even by what we want. But we're now defined by this new orientation with God and in his family. And it's demonstrated <coughs> by us Loving God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Yet the question then goes is how does this love of God flow into the chaos of the world? Because Jesus didn't just stop there by saying you just need to get right with me. He said you need to get right with me that's then going to flow into your neighbor. It's going gonna, it's gonna to become evident into your neighbor. And so now we got to wrestle with the next part of this that says, how does this happen when we live in a chaotic world? We got to ask this question, how do we love well? I don't think we ask this question enough. I don't think we teach this enough. 
I don't think we're wrestling with the, with the question about me loving well. Because <clears throat> if we're honest, a lot of us are just doing what we were raised. A lot of us are just doing what the group around us is doing. A lot of us are just doing what we see on TV or movies and think, oh, that's how I, I, I love well. So therefore, I'm going to love well that way. And we're not really honestly coming to grips with the reality that we have not been trained well to love because we're basing it off of the, the world's view of that. Now when I say love well, there's a lot that we have to unpack in that. First of all, I'm not saying when you love well, you accept or, or, or agree with everything someone says. Jesus interacted with people all throughout his life on earth and he, he loved well. But he didn't necessarily agree with what they were doing. He didn't agree with what they were saying all the time. But he loved them well. At the same time, we can't use love as some kind of manipulative, abusive term that makes people do things we want them to do. That's just being manipulative. That's using love as a weapon, as a tool, and saying, well, you're forced to love me, or you have to love me, or you have to do this to, to show me you love me. We have to have a real understanding of what love is. In fact, I would even use a word here that's kind of a buzzword nowadays in churches, but it's that word of deconstruction. We hear that word a lot, but I think we have to really look at it in an appropriate way of deconstructing how do we love? And are we loving well? You see, it's difficult for us to picture this because of many of us have not been formed to love well within society, family, and even our own churches. And we have to deconstruct to say, have I based my view of love and what it means to love my neighbor on what I've been raised, how my family treats me, how I want to do it, or in that deconstruction we get to, am I doing it the way Jesus did it? You see, Jesus is the foundation of all this. <clears throat> He's the, the very foundation of that. And so when we look at what we have built or what has been created, we have to ask, am I building it on the foundation of Jesus? Jesus loved so well that, that those who were outcasts, those who were sinners, had no problem coming to him. And neither did those who wanted to question him could come to him. Now, he understood their different motives and things, but he loved them well. Jesus tells us to love well is to give sacrificially. That Jesus even compares that to the way the husband should love their wives. That Christ gave his life for the church as a husband should sacrificially give his life for his family. Now that's not for you to sit on a throne in your living room and demand a sandwich and, and everyone does everything for you. But you are honestly to give up your life as a sacrifice. That Jesus, when they were asking who is the greatest among them, said, don't be arguing about the greatest the way that the, the Gentiles do. Argue about it who's serving one another. Be a slave to one another. That's the definition of greatness. You see, when we ask this question, are we loving well, we've got to deconstruct what <coughs> everyone else is saying or whatever else is doing or whatever else is thinking or even what your own thinking and to say, is this how Jesus showed what love is? You see, Jesus presents this simple concept, but it's into a complex world. And doesn't it sound easy just to go around saying, love God and love others? And we can put that, you know, in, in all these fancy ways and it sounds so simple, but it's complex. 
Relationships are complex. The world's complex. Yet this is the vision by what we live on. This is by living by faith. <coughs> and in that, we've got to recognize the rejection of this could be looked at as one of the greatest sins we can commit. Because if the greatest commandment is to love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself, and if we reject the neighbor part of it, then we're rejecting one of God's greatest commandments. And therefore, sin becomes that part again that, that begins to eat inward on us. Focus inward. <coughs> Focus in our self-preservation, our own self-lives. And so we've got to see this as sin is more than just a failure of God's moral law. But it's a failure to love. See, how often when we think about God and we think about our own lives, we assess our spiritual health in a legal sense. Well, I didn't do that and I didn't do this. And that's the way we kind of adjust and we look at God. <clears throat> Yet God is flipping that here in this passage by saying, and in a moment we'll see how he does that, it's not just a legal sense, but it's also what kind of love we're demonstrating. So I tell people, it matters how you speak to people. It's not just what you say. It's not just that you just can spit out truth, you can just post something, you can just say whatever you want. It's, it's more than that. It's more about what you're saying and how you're saying it and why you're saying it. Because the why can be a good indication, are you doing it out of love? Or you're doing it because you want to you just, you know, dunk on the person. You want to you tell them what you want to tell. You see, uh, sometimes uh, if you ever had that moment where you've taken a nice looking fruit and you open it up and it's just filled with worms or rotten things. I told you before, but I used to work at a pumpkin patch factory type thing, and one of my jobs was to pick up pumpkins, and I had to see if they were rotten or not, and you really couldn't tell if I was looking at them, you just had to pick them up and kind of feel the bottoms, and a lot of times my hands would go through the bottoms, and I would smell like rotten pumpkins, and that's why I hate pumpkins. <laughs> <laughs> they taste good, but that's about it. <clears throat> but this is what sin does when we choose to not love. When we withhold love, we're, we're breaking the greatest commandment that God gave to us. And we got to examine the rot and the worms eating away at our lives. Like what is it that's causing you to, to, to stop loving well? Not according to what the world says love, not according to what you want to love, but according to Jesus' love. What's stopping you? What voice is in your head? What, 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 what camps are you sitting at? What, what table have you allowed or, or people to sit around your table that is stopping you from loving well and loving like Jesus? Because that's what sin does. It eats at us and rots at us. And there's this false sense of morality that says, well, I'm not doing that, so I must be okay. Jesus says it's a lot more complex than that. He says it's not just sin about just not doing that, but it's measured not by sin avoidance, but thinking and following Jesus faithfully. And so here we come back to our story in Luke, sorry, chapter 10. And the lawyer asks the question, well, who is my neighbor? Great question. Who is my neighbor? If I am supposed to love well my neighbor, love God because God first loved me, then who is my neighbor? And there's this moment here. 
where Jesus puts a, a flag in the ground. Ever had that moment? It's like, just I claim it. And I'm making a, a statement that this is, this is it. And from all of humanity to this moment, Jesus takes this story of the Good Samaritan and he makes it as clear as possible. Now we're not going to look necessarily at everything about this story of the Good Samaritan. I'm sure you've seen it or read it or if not, I encourage you to do that. But there's no, no shadow of a doubt what God and Jesus is trying to do in this moment. He takes two Jewish individuals who are doing the right things in a law-abiding way and uses them as the example of what not to do. And then he takes the, the one that is hated, the Samaritan who is rejected, who is seen as the enemy as soon as the outcast, and he uses him as the hero of the story. And not only the hero of the story, but the Samaritan sacrificially gives up his donkey, gives up his money, gives up his time, and he follows it all the way through, even to tell the innkeeper, when, when I come back, I'll even take care of him. I'm not even wanting to see him just make it through the day, but I'm going to follow this all the way through. And we see this Samaritan loving well in a way that puts the, the, the Jewish community and those who had justified themselves by their own law-abiding righteousness right on their heels. And he's making a claim in this moment for all of humanity that anyone and everyone is our neighbor. And you can't divorce how we treat people <coughs> to what we claim God's about. First John picked that up too, right? When he says, you can't say you love God and hate your brother. Like there's something about this connection of how we love well and we treat others that flows right into what we believe about God of how we live by faith. And that concept, that idea <coughs> is what the beauty and the goodness and the kindness of God's vision of Life is. This is, the, this is the, 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 the tools and the painting that God wants us to use to, to, to draw this picture of what he sees life as. And all of it, what does it do? It, it draws us back to the one who gave us this. It draws us back to the one who first loved us. It draws us back to the goodness and the beauty and the kindness of our Savior. And we get to do that as we love well. And it's all because we're living by faith. You see that phrase sometimes gets captured and it's used because we want to we justify courage. Or we want to justify our own beliefs, our own idea. But to live by faith is to live by Jesus. I live by him and that's the, the painting I want to draw. It's not the one I see. It's not the one that my circumstances have done. It's not the one that other people are painting, but it is by faith I have in who Jesus is and what he's done for me that I will then love him and express that in the way that I love well others. You see, for those of us that have trusted in the finished work of the cross, we have this great joy <coughs> of living within his love. As we open ourselves to God's presence, we are, are his love orients us in a new direction. So I use that word freedom a lot lately because I love that word. We are free because of the love that God has given to us. 
What do I do in that freedom? It's not just I do what I want. I paint what I want. I draw what I want. I live the way I want. But now that freedom allows me to love others freely. That I'm not bound by winning their approval. I'm not bound by, by you know, needing them to validate me. I'm not bound by any other transaction. The transaction's been paid between God and Jesus. And I get to get in on that deal. And because I get in on that deal, I'm free to now love. And I can freely do that. I can freely sacrifice. I can freely help. I can freely give of my life. And it leads me living in a new direction. And that new direction is going to cause you to have new definitions of even what winning and losing is. So I think we need a whole new, new definition of what winning looks like. If you look out throughout the, the history of the church, the church thrived the most when it was losing according to the world's standards of winning and losing. And when it was doing its best, it was winning based upon the standards of what winning was according to God's view. I mean, you look at the early church in Acts, it wasn't winning in a Roman sense. It wasn't winning in a Jewish sense. It was winning in what God had called them to do and to love others around them and continually to then teach them and show them who Jesus is and drawing them back to Jesus. Telling them that they had a sin problem that was eating away at them just like they had too. And they needed the transaction of God and Jesus to fulfill that because they couldn't be righteous enough. All of that was the idea of am I winning in the right things? Am I losing in the right things? I mean, what a wasted life that we can give 40, 50 years of our lives winning at the wrong thing. When we can win at the things that are going to last for eternity. When I can maybe not have to win every argument I have with somebody, but I can maybe win in the way that I love and serve them. our communities, we feel it at, at our, in our homes, we feel it even in churches. And that sin wants to draw us inward, wants to <coughs> focus towards ourselves, protect ourselves, put up walls, put up these barriers. Put up reasons why we don't have to interact with people, do all these different things because it wants to pull us towards ourselves, wants to wrap people into different camps and then uh, isolate people as different, you know, something's bad and wrong and they're lesser than other people and, and, and we got we to reject those things. And we got to come to the truth that Jesus says, go and do likewise.